Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. There we go. Okay. How about you stand as we read the Word of God? Now, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded that ravens, uh, the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please, get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And Behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake for it, uh, from it first, and bring it out to me, and afterwards you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can take a seat. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to try my best to condense this. Um, so, so we have Elijah giving this uh, word to Ahab. 
He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, uh, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the reason he's giving that to Ahab is that in, um, in the book of First and Second Kings, the well-being of the kingdom is tied to the faithfulness of the king. If the king keeps the covenant the way that David kept it, right, follows the Ten Commandments, all that stuff, then the, the land is blessed with fruitfulness. If the king breaks um, the, the covenant, doesn't keep it, then it brings cursing on, on the land. And uh, so, like, take Solomon. He starts out very well. The first 11 chapters of Kings is all about God's uh, work in Solomon and, and the expanding of, of Israel's power and influence. But eventually, in his old age, Solomon himself even uh, turns from God. Uh, by, he allows his wife, his many, many, many wives and concubines to turn his heart after false gods. And, uh, and so God brings um, a discipline upon, uh, beyond, upon the kingdom for that. And the discipline uh, isn't immediately realized in Solomon's life, but right after with his sons. And the kingdom's torn into two, where Judah in the south and uh, Israel in, in the north. And uh, so the rest of Kings follows uh, those two kingdoms until the exile. And Judah has some good kings, but Israel never has any good kings. And the good kings are simply defined by whether or not they honor God like David did. Um, Namely, uh, the good kings you see in the southern kingdom tear down the idols, tear down the high places, and and bring them back uh, to worship. Now, um, in, the, in Israel, they have six wicked, terrible kings. And it all leads up to Ahab. And it actually, let me jump in here and see if I can find the verse. Um, when it leads up to Ahab, he's the worst of all. It actually says he, he, did, uh, he, he did more evil than all those that came before him. And the reason was those that came before him were involved in various types of idolatry. But Ahab kept adding idols. And he actually goes uh, to the land of um, Sidon and uh, takes a woman from there, Jezebel, and marries her and brings back uh, Baal worship. Builds a temple in Samaria and starts uh, to worship this false god there. Not only that, his wife, who's one of the most wicked women in all of Scripture, um, helps her husband to eradicate Yahweh worship or true worship, worship of God. And she tries to destroy all the prophets of God. Now, Obadiah, we find out, hides some of them away, a hundred of them, 50 in a cave each. Um, So she's not able to destroy, but they're trying to eradicate worship and uh, of the the true worship. And so obviously that brings cursing on the land. And uh, in Deuteronomy, there's God lays out the, the blessings that come with faithful worship and the curses that come with breaking God's covenant. And one of them is um, uh, God will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you're destroyed. So in other words, it also says it makes the ground as hard as bronze. So one of God's uh, punishments for turning from and for breaking the covenant is the removal of rain. And that's also um, important in this story because Baal is basically kind of like Zeus. 
He's the God of the sea, of the sky, of lightning, of rain, of water, a fertility God. And so they turn to worship this other God that promises them life and fruitfulness. Um, and what they get is dust because he's fake. He's not real. He has no power. And any work he ever did in history was the work of demons. So God brings that upon them and he, he brings it through Elijah and Elijah issues it to Ahab. And then chapter 17 and 18 is what some people call the drought narratives because it's just the stories that happen during the drought. And through them, things get more and more intense. First, he issues that to, to Ahab and then he goes to the brook and, and God feeds him by ravens and, and the water. But slowly the water is disappearing, which had to be intense. Right. Every time you're going down to the creek, there's a little less water. And um, and then in chapter 18, there's this climactic showdown on Carmel where um, where Elijah uh, says, Ahab, go get go get all your prophets, your prophets of Baal and let's see what they can do. And so they they prance around and do all this nonsense and they try to call um, fire down from heaven, which should be easy for Zeus. Right? It should be easy for Zeus to throw down lightning, and it doesn't happen. And instead, God uh, hears a, uh, Elijah's prayer, and fire comes down, showing that Baal has no power. But in the middle of that, there's our text, our story I want to look at, which is just verses 17 and 24, a deal with the death of this small child. Uh, relevant today, isn't it? Um, not child, but death, right? And the, desire, and the need for resurrection. So verse 17. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that we're, there was no breath left in him. So things are getting more and more intense. It's connected to this last passage. And this last passage, um, you know, this woman's preparing her last meal. She and her son are getting ready to die. And, uh, and here comes this strange man that says, uh, go get, you know, hey, before you, before you make dinner, get me some water and give me some of that. And it's amazing that this woman has some, she has some form of faith, right? Like she trusts the prophet. She even acknowledges his God, knows something about the God of Israel. And, uh, and she still has this hospitable spirit. God had been preparing her for it in some way. And, uh, and she makes uh, a cake for Elijah. And then we have this amazing story of the oil and flour not running out. Right? Dilemma solved. She's not going to die. Her son's not going to die. Things are looking up. Right? Hope is renewed. And then, and this happens, her son starts to get sick. He's a, he's a child. He's fairly small. We don't know how old. Uh, later in the text, it says he takes, uh, takes a child from her bosom. So some people think that means like, like a baby, but it could be her lap. So the, baby, the child's just dead, and she's cradling him, mourning, right? So he takes, so it's a small child, and um, so uh, things get real bad. He becomes sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. There's some liberal commentators, they want to say, well, he was just like in a coma-like state. Right? He wasn't actually dead. He was just near death. And Elijah was just like a really wise guy that understood like me, kind of like medical procedure early on. That's what they want to say. Um, but if you look at the text, it's super clear. 
uh, there was no breath left in him. Right? You go back to Genesis chapter uh, 2, verse 7, that man became a living soul when God breathed in him. Right? So this is their way of communicating to us that he is dead. There is no life left in this child. He's lifeless. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? And that translates literally, uh, what did I do to you? What's between us? What's this about? Right? You came here. I gave you water. I gave you food. I gave you housing. Uh, Why did you renew my hope? She had come to terms. She was gathering sticks, cooking me on, ready to die. And then Elijah comes and renews her hope. And now her son is dead. And this woman probably was a woman of some means. Right? She has a house enough where she can, um, where she can uh, put up someone. She has an upper room. And uh, so she wasn't always poor. Her husband's dead. She's a widow. He's gone. She had no servant to help her to pick up uh, sticks. All she had was this little boy. This little boy was her future. She loved him, but also he could grow and take care of his mom. So she she is losing everything. She's lost so much already. Her husband, right? Her whatever wealth she had, she's reduced her lowest. And then she had this hope. And now, now that hope is crushed as her boy is dead. And it seems cruel. It seems like God is messing with her. And that's because she grew up in a heathen land. And heathen gods, you think of the Greek gods that you learn about? How, you know, in some movies they imagine like uh, people on a chessboard, like with little pieces that they're messing with. And so she imports that sort of idea that God is some mocking God messing with her. Um, but of course, uh, he isn't. He's not like that at all. Um, she goes on to say, verse 18. You have come to me to bring my iniquity of remembrance and to put my son to death. So this is it's a fascinating passage. She's calling uh, Elijah man of God. That's a title that's, that ends up being applied to the prophets moving forward. She's recognizing that he is a legitimate represent, uh, representative of God. She also um, acknowledges her sin. That she's thinking that Elijah has drawn the eye of God onto her. And, and now her sin is being brought to the forefront. That sin probably, uh, least in part, was Baal worship. I mean, she is in the land of Jezebel. So Elijah has left Israel, and he has gone into a pagan land, the very pagan land where Ahab brought that false god out of. And so this is all God setting up the stage. God loves to show that uh, false gods have no power you know, you see that in the Egyptian plagues, and you're seeing that right here. So she says, uh, you know, why, do you bring, why are you bringing my sin up? What did I do to you? Why are you drawing God's eye? Why is he punishing me there? When she says, uh, to put my son to death, it, it can be translated slay, but it's like capital punishment. You know, she's thinking that Elijah's presence has brought Yahweh's uh, curse upon her. And her son. So she knows Yahweh is real. God is real. That God is powerful. That she has to answer to God for her sin. 
So she knows that that's real, but what she doesn't know is the character of God. She doesn't know what the true God's like. He's not like her false God. Um, he's not fickle, and he doesn't like to mess with people. He's a very fair and just God, a compassionate God, right? A gracious God. So Elijah said to her, give me your son. I mean, it's interesting that he just says that, right? He doesn't argue with her. You know, she's making all these accusations. I think it's just, she's just grieving. She's, she's upset. She's in the middle of grief. He's, um, and then he took her from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. So she's just, I see her like cradling this kid, you know, looking up to Elijah saying, why? And he just says, give me your son. I mean, uh, so he, he takes the kid upstairs. And so Elijah, he breaks into action. If you look at the verbs here, it's, it's cool. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. So it's, it's very, he's springing in action. It's really quick. It's rapid. He's going to do something about that. He's going to do something about the dilemma. And then you get to what he does in verse 20. He called to the Lord, right? Prayer was the action that Elijah took. I mean, it's, it's interesting that Elijah, almost more than any prophet, is the praying prophet. Elijah does a lot of weird stuff. Elijah and Elisha both. But even, um, we, we don't see it here in this text, but even the drought that's caused all this was caused by Elijah's prayer. We find that in James. That Elijah prayed that God would shut up the heavens, and he did. And he prayed again that he would open it up, and he did. So when Elijah acts, he acts through prayer because he's not magic. He's just a prophet. And prophets have no power outside of God. Right? Elijah's not like the, the prophets of Baal. You know, thinking that they can manipulate God. Um, they, when you get to the passage 18, they dance around, they leap around the altar. They're screaming and crying. And, and the Hebrew there is just that making a lot of noise. Like a lot of chatter. And they even cut themselves. The blood starts to flow everywhere. Um, but Elijah, Elijah prays. Because he knows that God can't be manipulated. God is not, God's not like a big vending machine. Right? You've got to figure out how to hit it right. Remember, if you're older, or you had Nickelodeon, you might remember Fonzie. And like he'd walk in there and just hit that uh, record player. Uh, record players or something that, when we kids, uh, before tapes and, well, yeah, all right. Uh, <clears throat> anyhow. Um, he would hit just right and it would play. No one else could do it. And, um, and that's, that's how a lot of pagans look at their, their shaman, their prophets and priests. They're, they're the ones that know how to manipulate God right. right? But that's, that's, God can't be manipulated. God has everything, all the power, all the resources, everything, all knowledge. What a weird vision of God. Just a reflection of man, isn't it? So Elijah calls to God. He'll call to God again soon, as I mentioned in chapter 18. Like when he, all those guys, when they dance around that altar, Elijah just says, hey, build another altar. We're not using that pagan one. 
uh, pour water on it three times. And then he has a very simple prayer. And, and power comes on down. And that's what he does here. He calls upon the Lord. O Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? And at first, this sounds like Elijah is taking the widow's accusatory tone, right? Why do you, why do you, why are you doing this, Elijah? Why are you messing with me? I don't think that's what's going on here. I think it's really simple. I think Elijah is pleading her case, right? He's, he's interceding. He feels her pain. And, he's, and he's, he's repeating it to God. And not just because he feels her pain, but God's reputation. Right? God, in a sense, Elijah's left um, Israel and now is in this pagan land. Uh, can God not do amazing things there? Is God's hand somehow bound? And of course he's not. Elijah's zealous for uh, the widow and for the reputation of God. That he's not just some local deity in Israel. He is supreme overall, right? Even in a pagan land. So he makes that plea. And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord saying, Oh, Lord, my God, I pray you let this child's life return to him. And this is kind of strange, right? Like three times. Um, I won't go on this long, but the, the worst funeral I ever went to as a Pentecostal, was the time that they opened up the casket and did this, trying to resurrect the person. All right. Um, and they did not get this passage. I'll come back to that. They don't get the point of this passage. Right. This wife climbed up on her husband and tried to resurrect him. It was strange. So he stretches himself upon the child three times. Some liberals say he's like trying to um, breathe life in him or warm him up or something like that. No, it's just, it's just his posture of prayer, right? Just stretching out, laying before God. Why does he do it three times? I don't know. Why does he pour the water three times on the altar in chapter 18? Right? It's, it's a habit of Elijah to make a point, to bring emphasis to it. In chapter 18, remember, he, pour, he says, pour the water in there three times. Let's make a point. Same thing's happening here. Um, and then he called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, my God. I pray you let this child's life return to him. This shows that, you know, in the first part of his prayer, he makes an argument, right? This woman's broken. She has nothing, right? Your reputation's at stake. All those things are implied here. Now he makes his request. And you notice the warmth of it. My God. Oh, Lord, my God. Um, Hang on here. So then... um, he, he simply asks that the child's life would return to him. Again, it's a simple prayer. God doesn't hear us for vain reputation, uh, repetitions. It doesn't have to be ornate. It's just a prayer of faith, right? The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. And so he trusts God. What makes Elijah righteous? The same thing that makes everyone righteous is that they have a, a real faith that transforms them, a faith from God. Trust God. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. This is, uh, if you go, if you look in Kings uh, chapter 18, verse 29, it's a great contrast here with the prophets of Baal. When midday was past, they raved. They raved. 
Not a good rave. I don't know that there is a good rave, but that's the sort of clatter that's going on. They raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But listen to this. But there was no voice. No one answered. And no one paid attention. Right? Idols can't hear. They have ears, but they can't hear. Psalm 115. They have no power. They're crying out the Baal, asking him to intervene. And he does nothing. But here, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child returned to him and he revived. It's beautiful. God hears. Our God is the God that listens. And listening and, and acts even. So then the life is returned to the child. Elijah uh, took the child, verse 23, and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. Verse 23 is an exact flip of verse 29. Remember, he's dead. Give him to me. He goes upstairs with a dead body, comes down with a living child and gives it back, returns the child back to the woman. It's a beautiful picture of what God does, right? He takes death and makes life. From the ash heap, he resurrects so many. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Elijah, then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in, uh, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So now she's a real convert, right? With real faith. There was something going on inside her beforehand, but she comes to faith. And this is the purpose of miracles and signs in, in, in Scripture. They're always to confirm the word. That's the Jesus, uh, you know, when we get into the I am statements here in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll see that all those miracles Jesus did was to show people who, who he is so they would trust him. So that gets me to three quick applications, okay? Um, the purpose of this passage is one, to, for us to see God's providence in everything. God's providence even in dark things, right? She, she didn't, the God that fed them through uh, the flour and oil, Miraculously, is the same God who took her child. Make no mistake, he did take her child. God takes everyone. There's no, there's no pharaoh that, a sparrow that falls to the ground apart from God. So, but he, he was sovereign over all of that. And there's a wonderful, uh, remember the blind man? Was it John 9? Uh, they're trying to figure out whose sin caused the man to be blind. And he's like, no one's sin caused the man to be blind. God had him be born blind so he could show you his power. And the same thing here. In this child, he had this child die so he could show the world that Baal has no power, nothing whatsoever, and he is the God that hears our prayers and acts. He's a God that is sovereign over death and sovereign over life. So you have to accept all providences from God, whether they be dark or not. They do. They do work out to good for those who trust them. I know that's hard when you're in the middle of it, right? But he is in them. Uh, secondly, prayer. Prayer is action. Prayer does stuff. God hears prayer. Elijah has a nature just like ours. That's what James 5 tells us. That's supposed to stir us up to prayer. Call out to God. Prayer is like the last thing we do. Like, oh, I guess I should pray. 
You know, it's the first thing that Elijah did. He prayed. And then lastly, this is a precursor, a picture of the resurrection that's to come. This kid, you know what happened to him? He died again. He died. He's dead. Right? All those people that got resurrected, they died again. Lazarus, the little girl. Right? We all are going to die. But that woman didn't realize at that funeral is that uh, heaven is better. Right? And all these pictures here to help us look forward to that final resurrection. It's a foretaste pointing us towards our ultimate hope. That's what he gave this woman. Because next time that kid dies, right, now she knows that God can raise him. Right? We all that have faith in Jesus will be raised on the last day and live forever and ever and ever. Right? Only the true God can give us that. Right? That's our hope. It's wonderful. It allows us to live a life not paralyzed by fear, but one propelled by faith. And God is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this record of history, a reminder of the way you intervene on behalf of those who have nothing. You didn't come to the widow because there's anything special about her. You came to her because you love those who are broken, those who have nothing. You especially love widows and orphans. And Lord, you have brought us to yourself, not because we had anything, but because you're a gracious and good God. I pray we would accept the providences that you give us with faith, looking forward to a day where every tear will be wiped away, where there will no, be, there'll no longer be a death, disease, no war, uh, where righteousness will dwell um, forever in that new heaven and new earth where we'll be with you. In your son's name, amen.